Hello everyone and uh, welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Risby, good evening uh, or good morning, wherever, whatever time you kind of listen to this. Yeah, what the hell am I on about? Yes, uh, we've got a podcast to do and as always, joining me via the miracle of satellite technology is the man with two brains, Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? Uh, yeah, doing very, very well and uh, not maybe not quite as confused as you about the fact we're recording a podcast. Yeah, I'm definitely thrown by that because it's kind of feels like evening, but it's technically morning. Anyway, busy week this week uh, in the news. I always say that it's it's inevitably always busy because uh, shit don't stop for anyone. But the most exciting news of the week is that uh, Ian McShane has joined the cast of Game of Thrones in a mystery role. Don't really care what the role is. Uh, it's Ian McShane. Yeah, Ian McShane returning to HBO for the first time since Deadwood ended. Uh, and it's very exciting because he's a great actor and he's the sort of person you can really see fitting into that world mm. well he certainly uh has got the swearing chops for it yeah probably quite a high chance he will spend best part of an episode talking to a uh, decapitated head <laughs> uh in a box or a prostitute possibly yeah he, his kind of chops that he's kind of a uh kind of earned on deadwood really do kind of like they're transferable skills, that's what I'm saying. From Deadwood to Westeros, you can you can make a living. Yeah, and it's, it also continues the, the odd sense that HBO seem to have a kind of a rep company. It's like there are mm. actors who just show up in it all the time, like uh, like the, the second Dario was in Treme, um, the Mr. Echo from Lost, who was originally in Oz, showed up in Game of Thrones last year. Yeah, there's just all these guys who just keep uh, re- recurring uh, and mm. it's it's kind of odd, I guess. It's it's good work, and uh, if you can, if you have a a uh, kind of a malleable personality, you can go from the kind of the streets of Baltimore to Westeros fairly easily. It's probably safer yeah. in Baltimore, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's quite a high crossover from uh, the Wire to Walking Dead, mm. uh, isn't there? And uh, they're kind of hopping between networks, but yeah, it's nice to see good actors getting work. Uh, and I approve. I don't know who he's going to be playing. Uh, I can only speculate that he is going to play the ghost of Sean Bean, possibly. <laughs> yeah, ho- hopefully. I think the the money is on that he's probably going to be playing one of Theon's relatives because there's a whole plot line with the Greyjoys uh, deciding to kind of enter into the, the war of all the various kings and kind of stir things up. Uh, mm-hmm. And that wasn't touched on last year, so... If they're doing that plot line, he'd probably be a good a good choice to join that. He's got the kind of uh, weather-beaten look of someone who's been on lots of ships. So I think he's probably, if he's going to be anything, it's that. Or it'll be just a character that hasn't been introduced in any of the books yet because they're pretty much out of book. Mm. Um, what about the character name uh, Theon Lovejoy? <laughs> to, com- to combine you know, his, his signature role uh, into the, the Game of Thrones world, I think... That works quite nicely. It's been a big week for spy films. Uh, Mission Impossible 5 uh, proves, or seems to prove, uh, that uh, there's life in that old dog because that's been a runaway hit. Well, I'd say runaway. It's been successful as you'd expect it to be and just kind of goes to prove that it's a very, very kind of uh, robust franchise because they've announced that uh, number six will start shooting next year. Yeah, I think it's 
proof, if proof you needed, that if you make good films and people consider you reliable, they'll probably keep coming back. Because, mm. uh, with the exception of Mission Impossible 2, which still... Which is terrible. Yeah, but it still has some decent action. But yeah, it's not a great film. Um, they've all been good to great. And clearly, you know, between the Mission Impossible 3 and Ghost Protocol, I think it's it's built up a pretty big f- uh, group of fan bases who go for it for kind of crazy action sequences. Certainly all the stuff about uh, Tom Cruise hanging off of a plane, mm. having clearly the world's most high-profile death wish, is is has driven people to it, which is is impressive. Um, and also I think it's it's interesting that it's a kind of director-led franchise and that they always kind of make a big deal about who's going to direct it and the directors tend to bring their own style to it in a big way. So mm. they, they actually look quite distinct and interesting compared to, you know, your, your Marvel films where they start to get a bit cookie cutter after a while. Um, and kind of Tom Cruise likes who he likes, doesn't he? Like Christopher mm. McQuarrie, I think, uh, I think he might have written for Tom Cruise before. He might be one of his kind of go-to guys when he, he comes onto a project yeah, and he, uh, kind of returning the favour for, for to have him direct it. Yeah, he wrote Valkyrie and he wrote Edge of Tomorrow and he also directed him in uh, in Jack Reacher. So ah. this is their at least their fourth film working together. So clearly, uh, they they do kind of get on very well. Yeah, Christopher McQuarrie, who uh, wrote The Usual Suspects, didn't he? That was mm. him, and also directed that terrible film Way of the Gun. Oh, I like Way of the Gun. It's oh dear. Yeah, I think of the post Tarantino kind of super edgy films, I think it's it's got a, a kind of wry sense of humor. It Ryan Felipe is not great, but I think there's uh, no, I I enjoy that. I think there's a lot of fun in it. Okay, well, given that I watched that film when it came out and haven't seen since, and you've just uh, given it a seal of approval, I shall revisit. Uh, and if I don't like it, then it's your fault. Um, okay, and uh, they've kind of greenlit, not not unrelated news. They've greenlit a Born Five as well. That's going to be shot next year. Yeah, um, that is that a surprise? But because I don't know how well I don't think did did the one with Jeremy Renner not do great. It was the lowest grossing since the first one, and I think if you adjust for inflation, it was the lowest. It, it sold the fewest tickets, and it wasn't a huge hit worldwide. Um, and it was pretty expensive, so yeah, I think it was a case where it was pretty much a draw, and they didn't think that there was much value in continuing with him. And there's been rumours of uh, Greengrass and and Matt Damon coming together and working on it, and I think it's been in a case. It's been in a situation where the film has been. I think semi-confirmed for about six months, but this may mm-hmm. be the first time they're actually confirming. Yeah, this is this is definitely happening. Right. Yeah. Do we need any more Bourne films? I kind of don't think it, I have a similar feeling about it to how I feel about the Toy Story trilogy, which is that I think the Toy Story trilogy is kind of perfect and exists in its own way, but I don't mind them revisiting the characters for a fourth film if they think they've got a good idea. And I think mm. that the Bourne trilogy is really great series of films that have a, a really distinct style and something to say. And I think they're very interesting as kind of a reflection of America in the kind of the Bush era and the, those kind of politics coming out of it. So my concern would be, would be what would it have to say in the post-Bush era? And that also is kind of what I would be interested in seeing, you know, if they feel they have something to say with it now. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's see if they do. Key and Peel is ending. That's uh, kind of sad, but also kind of all right. Yeah, it's it's one of those cases where it's it's great in that they're ending it on their own terms because they haven't been cancelled. They just said 
we feel like we want to go and do separate things. And it's kind of understandable because uh, Jordan Peele is, I think, writing, directing a horror film. Uh, uh, Keegan-Michael Key is basically showing up in everything. I think he's in Mm -hmm. like five or six films this year. And I think at a certain point, the requirements of doing a sketch show gets to be too much, particularly if you're the only two guys who are in every episode. Like sketch shows in general are pretty labor intensive. And if you're the the two main guys in it, there's not really any let up. So I think at some point you probably think, yeah, I'd like to have a rest from that and do take on jobs that are a little less intense. Mm. Yeah. 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 But it was uh, nice to have them. And uh, the best stuff will always be prescient, I guess, because it'll always be around. Mm. That's, the, that's the advantage of doing sketch shows. You, people will forget the shit stuff. Yeah, and also, you know, the four years, and apart from bits of the first season, which is good but not great, you've still got at least three really, really great seasons of television, which is, mm. uh, you know, more than some shows get. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and kind of uh, lastly in the news, it kind of looks like the push-me-pull-you nature of the the other Ghostbusters film has finally been resolved, or kind of has it, because Ivan Reitman has said that there isn't a rival uh, Ghostbusters film happening, but then he said the opposite thing a few weeks ago, and everyone's a bit confused as to what's going on. Yeah, and also there was rumours, because uh, I think about a month ago, uh, Channing Tatum said that it wasn't happening anymore, that he'd walked away from it because I, I get the feeling that the work that's going into it has probably distracted him from it, uh, doing other projects and it might be causing conflicts of interest. So he might not be involved anymore, but he might be still, you know, it's, it seems to, it seems weird that they're having such difficulty getting that one off the ground. But mm. at the same time now, you know, there's so much attention being paid to it, but at the same time, you know, it took them, what 25 years to get the 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 female ghostbusters up and running so uh it's uh perhaps not surprising that trying to get another one is proving difficult Mm. um we've talked a lot in the the kind of recent past about uh nostalgia being a force in films and talking about um you know remaking old properties and stuff but the ghostbusters thing has been kind of very interesting to watch unfold just to see people's reactions to it. But I had a conversation with someone today and they were kind of saying that Ghostbusters isn't actually that good and why are people getting kind of so upset about it? And I kind of hadn't really thought about it before because I quite like Ghostbusters. But then the last kind of thing that we know of Ghostbusters is Ghostbusters 2, which is really crap. So, like, you know, are people upset that of how they're remaking Ghostbusters or are people thinking that do people have that much affection for Ghostbusters too? Yeah, I think it is mainly tied up with the first film. If it's tied up with anything, I can't Mm. imagine that people are, you know, if people are basing it off of uh, Ghostbusters too, I can't imagine that that cut up about it or even off the cartoon series. It just seems to be, uh, you know, goodwill towards one film that's over 30 years old at this point. And, Mm. uh, the the people who grew up on that film were the right age to bitch about it online. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fun. I mean, I, I'd rather see, um, you know, a kind of whole new cast do something different than roll out, you know, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, and and Ernie Hudson to do something. I think that would be that would be terrible. Mm, although I, I I would like to see a very sad third Ghost, Ghostbusters film where they're just constantly sad about Egon being dead. 
Yeah, and like complaining about like arthritic knees and stuff. And yeah, it's just a kind of it's like it's kind of like the straight story, but <laughs> with ghosts and that. Yeah, yeah, I'd watch it anyway. Uh, we've got a new feature um, that we hope will be semi regular, and uh, we hope to cement its semi semi regular status uh, by giving it its own jingle. Uh, we'd like to introduce you to a little feature we like to call Bullshit Lists. Bullshit Lists. As everyone knows, uh, our culture is being kind of rapidly listified. And, you know, you can't bloody move for, uh, you know, articles that say, you know, 21 best this, 13 things you won't believe about that, and all that kind of nonsense. Um, so we thought we'd pick uh, some lists that have appeared and kind of talk about how perhaps... There are some alternatives to these things, and and the list we picked this week is uh, in good old Empire magazine. Who, uh, you know, they love a list. Um, they've done a hundred greatest movie characters of all time, voted for by their readers. And you know, I'm you know not going to say uh, I'm above Empire magazine. I you know used to subscribe and and read it for a long time, and uh, they've turned me on to some wonderful films. But their readership, when asked to vote for things, can't be trusted. Um, they famously put Kevin Smith in the top 20 directors who ever lived. They put uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 2 in the top 500 films ever made. And yeah, those kind of things aren't good. And their top 100 list is uh, kind of predictable and a bit of a sausage fest, Ed. Yeah, I saw it in the list of uh, 10 worst lists online. Yeah. Which doesn't exist, but I think it really It's a hot should. list. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, uh, kind of, it kind of drives home how pointless this is. I mean, I'd rather see a list of a hundred characters curated by some people who will, you know, you can read it and then perhaps think, oh yeah, I've never heard of that film. I'll check that out and be turned onto it, rather than opening it up to the public and just having the same old kind of things thrown out there. Like the like the top three is Indiana Jones, James Bond, and Han Solo, which is kind of pretty tirelessly predictable from what you'd get from empire readers but then you've got like you know just a reflection of of the kind of film culture at the minute both uh batman and the joker in the top 10 uh, optimus prime cracks the top 100 uh, and then you also get kind of demented choices like uh ace ventura uh being in at number 59 uh, a whole 30 odd places above norman bates yeah, of those ones, the thing that strikes me is things like James Bond and Indiana Jones. They're iconic, but I would struggle to call them great characters. Mm. Like, they don't really have a huge amount to them. They're both really just ciphers for the audience to kind of get a vicarious thrill of watching someone do great stunts in fun locations. Like, Han Solo has a bit more depth and a bit more fun to him. But mm-hmm. a lot of those ones, and, and, and you know, Ace Ventura is just a collection of ticks from a very kind of uh, talented comedic performer. It's not really, mm. there's not much there in terms of character. It is literally just like 12 catchphrases strung along in any order. Mm. Yeah, and that does not a character make. So uh, if we're going to call bullshit on this list, uh, uh, kind of run down some people uh, that are missing from that. Uh, I've kind of like had a quick look um, and, uh, yeah, to kind of try and redress the gender balance. Annie from Bull Durham is one we talked about. She's nowhere to be seen in there. Um, in fact, I think that uh, Ellen Ripley is the only female in the top 30, I think, which is pretty bad. Jesse and Celine from the Before films. Uh, can't believe they're not in there. Um, my own personal uh, kind of choices. I'd like to see Billy Casper in there from Kez. Harold or Maud, or preferably both. 
Jorah number eight from uh, Twelve Angry Men, uh, an iconic performance, and you know, a kind of uh, a great, great kind of uh, character. Not even I don't know, I don't even where know know where he finished in in the voting, but but not in the top one hundred, that's for sure. Who would you like to see included? Ed? Uh, I would probably like to see uh, Ree from Wintersburn, played by Jennifer Lawrence. Mm. Who I think is uh, a, a a great performance and, and one of the great kind of. Uh, strong, determined female characters of of recent years. I think that'd be one that, uh, you know, is hugely. It's a it's a film that I think it has kind of been forgotten a little bit in the fact that she's Katniss now. Um, yeah, well, and, Katniss makes it into the. Uh, I think she. I think she. She's the only other female character in the top thirty. I think. Yeah, and I'm fine with Katniss getting it because that's another really good performance and it's a it's a good, interesting character. But I think that. Uh, that re is is a is a better performance and a stronger piece of work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what do you think about the list overall? Well, like you say, it's very uh, male heavy, as you know, most of these lists tend to be. Um, there was a furore over the recent weeks about the BBC's culture poll of the 100 best American films, where only one of them was directed by a woman, and even then, it was co-directed because it was um, Grey Gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think. It's it's hard to kind of draw a line because I think it's it's a an artificial barrier to say that half the list has to be female, but at the same time, a lot more, a bit more representation would be you know welcome and uh, you know may turn people onto films that they haven't heard of before because they're not comic books and action movies or they're not kind of part of the male dominated culture that Empire's readers certainly uh, partake in and that Empire kind of feeds as well because that's their market mm. it says quite a lot about the kind of people who actually do vote for it as well that uh, like Mal from Serenity makes it who is a great character in a TV show he's also kind of Han Solo <laughs> in a brown coat um, but yeah, I think he makes it quite high up the list he's, he's definitely in the top half of that list um, but I think that kind of betrays who who kind of votes on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, if you kind of want a good list to kind of look at, uh, Little White Lies have been doing a uh, top film, uh, top 100 films directed by female directors, which is what lists should do, because uh, I'm not too afraid to admit that there was a good deal of films on there I'd never heard of and directors that I'd kind of familiar with, but now we'll definitely check out. Yeah, I went on uh, Letterboxd because I assumed that someone would have uh, put together a list of it, and I think I'd seen 20 of them, so I've endeavoured to try and watch as many of the remaining 80 uh, over the next couple of months as I can. Mm, uh, because, yeah. yeah, there's some great stuff on there that uh, I haven't seen and really should have. Yeah, um, so check that one out in return. We'll have another bullshit list next time around. Uh, anyway, what are we talking about tonight, Ed, um, specifically uh, as our main focus for the show? We're talking about the House of Mouse, Disney. Yes, it's kind of been building for a while, this this episode, uh, mainly because I've been uh, involved in a year-long pursuit to try and watch all of the Walt Disney animated classics, by which I mean, you know, the 50-odd films that have been made by the Walt Disney uh, stu- animation studios, uh, rather than all that kind of other stuff they throw out. But Disney is a, is a fascinating entity in itself. Where does your personal relationship begin with it, Ed? Pretty much as soon as I started watching films, um, the first film, the first film I remember seeing in the cinema, and it probably is the first one because I can't think of what else I would have seen before then, was Beauty and the Beast, um, 
which people will know if they go back and listen to the very first episode of this podcast. Mm. But yeah, so I and and growing up, uh, we had like pretty much every Disney animated film on video as they were getting released, as they were being unleashed from the vault, or as they came out. Uh, you know, the new films up until between uh, Beauty and the Beast and I think Treasure Planet. I saw every new Disney animated film in the cinema. Uh, usually on opening mm-hmm. weekend. So as a kid, I was I was massively obsessed with them. Yeah, and that's kind of runs slightly contrary to my personal relationship with with Disney because I was perhaps slightly too old for what's known as the kind of the Disney Renaissance uh, films. Uh, for those that don't know, the kind of Disney uh, we're going to close their animated kind of wing, the animation wing, because it just wasn't doing particularly well. Kind of from the in the kind of seventies and. Um, I don't know how far they'd probably go back, but yeah, in the 70s and kind of early to mid 80s, films weren't particularly well received. Uh, even The Black Cauldron is is still, I think, the only uh, Disney film that lost money uh, or didn't make money, um, uh, which is kind of very unusual for them. So uh, they were looking at closing it down, uh, but then they kind of tried to give it one more chance, and and we get the what's called the Disney Renaissance, which began with the Little Mermaid in nineteen eighty nine, and continued probably up until Tarzan. So like a really good stretch of uh, films that uh, kind of changed in style, going back to being more kind of like musical, uh, based on kind of traditional stage musical type things. But I was slightly too old for that. I think I went, I mean I remember going to see Lion King at the cinema, but. I was like 12 and not really kind of starting to grow out of those films. So my relationship growing up with Disney is like the shit ones, <laughs> like Black Cauldron. And, mm. and I remember getting the sticker book and going to see Basil the Great Mouse Detective at the cinema. Um, and uh, they weren't films as much as there's bits in them that are cool and you can watch them and appreciate some of the work that has gone into them. Um, they are not particularly films that is anyone's there anyone's favorite disney films so i growing up didn't have quite the same relationship so it's weird that i've now come back to it and i'm not going to say like oh i'm watching it with my kids i don't have any kids um i'm kind of watching the films again with a kind of like a more uh kind of more being more open to them now i'm kind of not worried that i'm watching a kind of cartoon musical yeah i think uh one of the things that's quite interesting about that kind of renaissance period is that uh it was it 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 pretty much re it it changed the nature of uh animation in the states uh in america certainly for forever with things like uh, robin williams voicing the genie in aladdin that was something that hadn't really happened before before if you had celebrities doing voices in animated films would be things like you know Peter Ustinov doing the voices in Robin Hood and things like that. It's like it's it's like an actor that uh, people might know, but it wasn't like they didn't sell a film on the fact that a famous person was doing the voice. Mm. And after that, um, you know, you start to get the thing that Billy West has complained about, and you know, kind of rightly about the fact that they start casting people because they have really their their big names instead of you know, their ability to actually do good work. But that was a kind of a massive shift, and then you start to see. Uh, DreamWorks animation starts up in direct response to the uh, to the the Disney success, uh, and you also see things like uh, Disney's uh, animation for television kind of got really big during that time. You get things like Ducktales, 
uh, Darkwing Duck, uh, the Aladdin spin-off series, the Timon and Pumbaa spin-off series from uh, The Lion King, the Tarzan TV series, like pretty much every film from that period seemed to spin off either a director video sequel or a TV series. Um, mm. And it, it, the animation renaissance was not only just in uh, terms of sit in terms of cinema; you also see it on television a lot. And you can look at there's a whole swave of you know great animated cards animated series from that time. Stuff like uh, you know even you know the Batman animated series, which you kind of think probably wouldn't have existed if Disney hadn't decided that they would take one more cr- you know crack at the bat. Mm. And it's interesting to know that uh, to kind of see that there's all, there's almost been like a continuous like slew of of kind of good stuff coming out of Disney with since the Little Mermaid you had the kind of the the Disney Renaissance as it were and then when the Disney animation stuff started to drop off uh, by that point they'd acquired Pixar which is uh, kind of you know another part of their another kind of string to their bow because they always distributed Pixar films but now they own them. Yeah, bought them. I think around two thousand and six, around about the release of Cars. Yeah, because so, Cars like, was going to be the last one for them. The Disney Renaissance. I mean, we kind of use that phrase a lot. I'd recommend to anyone who hasn't already done so to watch the documentary uh, "Waking Sleeping Beauty," which is fantastic because a it kind of tells the story that we're kind of like talking about now, um, but also does it with kind of this un kind of matched access because uh, the people and the animators who worked in the studios, uh, including John Lasseter and Tim Burton and people like that. And all Nate, when you see the names pop up, you'll recognize them from uh, Disney and Pixar films from top to bottom, but they filmed everything. Uh, they filmed the, the guys just, you know, talking about story ideas and uh, animators just kind of frustratingly kind of sketching stuff out for uh, approval and everything. They filmed everything for years and years and years. So, the look behind the curtain you get is 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 a very kind of like privileged one, but that's a great place to start if you kind of want to start to kind of understand where Disney's kind of at now. But uh, after Tarzan, um, which let's remind everyone that Phil Collins won an Oscar for, but I think Tarzan's actually really good. I really enjoyed it in the cinema, and I pretty I, I imagine I probably watched it a lot on video. Mm. Um, no, it, yeah, it's pretty really good. It. It's pretty good. Um, but after Tarzan, the films kind of dropped off again. Um, they had a, a kind of you know they perhaps weren't as critically um, revered as the other ones, um, and then we're kind of now entering this kind of second uh, Disney Renaissance, um, which kind of began with the Princess and the Frog, and has kind of kept going right up to uh, Big Hero Six. All the films have been excellently well received and huge hits at the box office. Yeah, and you can really trace that to uh, the purchase of Pixar again, because part of the deal with that was that John Lasseter took over. The uh, the the animation studio wing of Disney, and he you know he did things like he closed down their direct to video department, which I think may be back up and running now, but certainly was out of commission for several years. Mm. And he also took a very strong hand in in redirecting projects that were in development. Like he did a lot of work to try and salvage things like Bolt and uh, Meet the Robinsons, which uh, were not great films, but probably better than they would have been if he hadn't been there to kind of rescue them. And then you can really see his clear hand, his his guiding hand in things like, obviously, Frozen, Big Hero 6, Wreck-It Ralph, Tangled, mm-hmm. which is probably the best of the, the bunch of the, the films that have come out since Princess and the Frog, but also in the, the fact that now all Disney features come with a short film, which Pixar were doing for years. 
and that they often used it as a way to test out new techniques or to give kind of emerging talent a, a chance to shine. And I think that the the shorts that have been attached to Disney features have a similar uh, a, a similar thing driving them. Mm. I would say um, of the kind of post Renaissance films, the ones that kind of aren't good. Uh, I mean, Atlantis is terrible. Hercules is a mess. But the one that I kind of was really surprised that I I really enjoyed was uh, The Emperor's New Groove, um, which has a really troubled production history, mainly due to Sting. But uh, it's just really weird and unusual as a story. And uh, Patrick Warburton kind of uh, uh, is the MVP of that one with uh, his character Gronk, uh, I believe his name is. Um, I'm a big fan of The Emperor's New Groove, and I'm not afraid to say it. Yeah, that one that one's great. Uh, as is uh, Lilo and Stitch, which I think probably came out directly after it. Those yeah, were kind I think, of the two, yeah, I think so. Yeah, those were the kind of the two outliers after they hit a rough patch. Uh, mm. And they're both, uh, and the I think the uh, appeal of Lilo and Stitch is is testament is testified to by the fact that if you go to Disney World and Downtown Disney, there there's Stitch dolls and everything everywhere, mm. uh, which they don't do for uh, characters that you know didn't. Past, past muster, you know, there's not a lot of Chicken Little merchandise kicking around. No, no Brother Bear merchandise. No. Uh, I think Brother Bear might be one of the worst ones uh, I've seen. It's it's pretty terrible. Home on the Range is pretty terrible. Is it? Yeah, that was the... I think that was the last traditionally animated one they did before Princess and the Frog. Um, right. Yeah, that one is... It, it is basically like a traditionally hand-animated DreamWorks film. You know, mm. in the Shrek mould. It's lots of pop culture references. You know, sassy... Sassy cows, um, yeah. kind of a boring story. It's really, it's just misguided and misfiring on every level. Mm. I will look out for that one. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> fantastic. It's interesting that you said that Disney had a, an, a huge effect on animation because when they were going through this dip after uh, um, the Renaissance, other studios really did kind of up their game, didn't they? Yeah, certainly in the case of DreamWorks, there's a clear uptick when, I think when they saw that there was a gap in the market and that they could offer some sort of uh, alternative to Disney and Pixar, that's mm. when they started to grow uh, creatively and it took them a while, you know, I think you're probably looking at a good 10, 15 years of them just doing stuff that was not great and that was just in some cases, seem to be a direct rip-off of what Pixar were doing in the case of Ants. Mm -hmm. um, and there's kind of a, there's a long, complicated backstory where I think uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg work, was working with Disney around about the time that Pixar were working, developing Ants, and then he obviously left and ended up at, you know, forming DreamWorks, and then they made an Ant film. Um, you know, so there's possibilities there of of, uh, of people stealing ideas. But, you know, around about the mid-2000s, you start to see stuff like Kung Fu Panda and How to Train Your Dragon coming through. And, mm -hmm. you know, even something like Monsters and Ape versus Aliens, which is pretty fun. You know, you start to see a bit more uh, bit, bit more high-quality work coming through. Certainly once the Shrek franchise dried up and they just started trying to look for something to replace it. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm a huge fan of How to Train Your Dragon. Um I think that was the point at which I thought DreamWorks actually finally cracked it because mm -hmm. I'm not really a fan of those kind of Shrek films and a lot of their films seem to be kind of, you know, like say rush jobs or, or knocking off stuff that Disney had done, but How to Train Your Dragon seems to be out on its own. Yeah, and, and it has a real kind of, similar to um, 
Kung Fu Panda has the same thing where the stories have some emotional depth as well as, you know, fun fun uh, dialogue and really good, well-staged action. Mm. So they can actually work on multiple levels rather than just, you know, tired pop culture references, which is kind of the main level that Shrek worked on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, whilst uh, Disney, as a studio, has uh, kind of surpassed itself in in terms of some of the artistry uh, that is promoted and, and some of the uh, uh, most iconic film characters uh, they've created, um, it's kind of tethered slightly to the fact that Disney is one of the biggest corporations in the world mm. and as such uh, behaves fairly despicably <laughs> in, a, in a capitalist sense. Um, anyone who wants to or has already read uh, Naomi Klein's No Logo, uh, a great kind of... Uh, political science book, I guess. We'll kind of know all about Disney's uh, kind of sweatshopery. But when you look at how Disney conducts itself a lot of the time, it really is kind of clear that they really have only one obligation. It's not to making great art, it is to their shareholders, which is really obvious when it comes to stuff like just endlessly sequelizing uh, everything. I mean, The Lion King has got, what, three sequels that went kind of straight to video and, you know, they will kind of rinse it and rinse it and rinse it. Uh, until they can, you know, rinse it no more. But stuff like, you know, when they acquired Pixar and they kind of demanded sequels, I think Toy Story 2 was going to be a straight-to-video sequel, was it? Um, and 3 was as well. So the, and the, threat of, the threat of a uh, DVD, straight-to-DVD Toy Story 3 was a big uh, was a big stumbling block of, uh, like, that. they basically said that if they didn't buy Pixar, they would just rush out a cheapo, you know, quickie Toy Story sequel. And mm. I think that was something that uh, a lot of the Pixar people were horrified by the prospect of. Yeah, so they jumped on it and, and, and did a good job with, with uh, you know, uh, a gun to their head, as it were, which is great. But uh, kind of where does the line kind of blur? Because, you know, you're, I know filmmaking is a business and, you know, things have got to make money. But... um at what point does Disney's uh, kind of business needs kind of start to damage the artistic output? I think it's there's a it, it's quite strange really because you're right that Disney obviously are they're beholden to their shareholders and they uh, have all of these you know huge projects and they they want to all make money but they're also because of the the amount of properties they own and the various tendrils of the business they are i think they're willing to take bigger risks than a lot of studios are currently mm. you know they're they're the studio that invested 200 million dollars in john carter and the lone ranger in consecutive years and those films didn't turn out great although there are parts of the lone ranger that are kind of astonishing but you know the the fact that they took those risks and were willing to face the markdown on it and and you know and in both cases i think had huge write offs shows that there is a commitment there to trying things to see if they'll work. Mm. Um, and those things didn't work, but Maleficent made a huge amount of money, so now we're going to get a, a load of live-action remakes or sequels to classic uh, animated films, and that seems to be... Their thing is that they'll take big risks on things, uh, and then once one of them pays off, they'll just kind of follow it up and, and run it into the ground, which they kind mm. of did with the Disney Renaissance as well. Like A lot of great films came out of that. But it was a case where the Little Mermaid made a lot of money, and then 
they were like, oh, we can make money doing this now. And they just kind of put all their resources into animated films until those were uh, unprofitable and they shift to CG. Mm. Um, we've, we've mentioned before um, and kind of touched on it earlier uh, about Disney's wide-ranging acquisitions. And I think we mentioned it a couple of episodes ago that we were looking ahead to, I think, 2016 or maybe 2017. It's a year in which... Uh, Disney are going to have out Toy Story 4, Pirates of the Caribbean 5, uh, Star Wars 8, uh, and The Avengers 3, Mm. (laughs) Um, which is given that they own Pixar, they own Marvel, uh, they own Lucasfilm. uh, Well, is there anything else massive that they own? Uh, I I can't think of anything massive they've acquired, but they do have just through being around so long. They have a lot of stuff they just happen to own. Yeah, the the franchises that they own kind of absurd, and that that's that is the kind of the end game of capitalism when one entity owns everything, and there's kind of no competition. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Like as soon as Disney purchased Lucasfilm, we instantly had a roadmap to you know a film every year for the foreseeable future, and TV shows, uh, animated TV shows, live action TV shows, uh, anthology films. Um, and given that we've had what six Star Wars films uh, in nearly the forty, thirty, forty years, what no, seventy six? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're coming up to 40. forty years. Is that that kind of just shows what you know how Disney view their commercial output? Yeah, and you can see that with the Marvel films as well. Oh you yeah. Know, obviously, I think Marvel Studios only put out three films before Disney bought them. I think, you know, the first two Iron Man films and The Incredible Hulk. And they obviously had the the ambitious idea of doing the Avengers at the end of it, but I don't think if you'd asked them what their end game was, that it would have included Netflix series, stuff on ABC. They wouldn't have included all of these like huge multimedia stuff that all kind of uh, comes together for a big world. I think they would have been satisfied with a... Uh, with with a cinematic universe and like that, that similar to the one that we've created, but obviously uh, Disney being involved means that they have way more access to different revenues, streams, and different outlets that mm. they can, you know, force those things through. And I think that this, in in terms of judging the artistic value of these sort of things, the 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 key thing with Disney often is that they have so much money and they try so many things that some of them just happen to be artistic almost by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the case of something like Pixar, Pixar's, Pixar's work rate is not as hectic as some Disney uh, properties are, so that's why their films have had a higher hit rate. And I think they're because they're, they're obviously based out of San Francisco, they're a bit further away from the corporate machine than everything else. But mm-hmm. if you look at stuff like Marvel and and the, 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 the rapid pace at which Star Wars stuff is being made... You can really see what happens when they they kind of grab hold of something and then try and explore as many permutations of of profitability from it. And occasionally you get something like you know the Daredevil series, which is really really good, but mm. uh, a lot of the time it doesn't really happen that way. Yeah, um, and let's not forget it's not just uh, films. You know, it's a you know multi 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 billion dollar, if not gazillion dollar kind of uh, theme parks and uh, merchandising must be one of the biggest merchandisers uh, 
in the world, I reckon. That's a yeah. bold claim I'm going to make with no evidence to back it up. Um, so, yeah, it, it really does. I mean, there's Disney, like every city's got like, you know, at least one Disney store. Um, you know, there's no Universal Studios store. It's uh, uh, quite a unique and weird position them to be in although i remember my friend i my, my friend yasa used to say that um he was baffled by disneyland uh he basically kind of said he called the castle in disneyland like uh it was like a, he called it a cathedral of vermin worship because <laughs> uh, you know people people go all this way to kind of like uh you know worship a mouse as it were uh, it kind of it's kind of right but yeah have you been to disneyland yeah, yeah, a bunch of times. Uh, it does kind of have that vibe to it. I think Escape from Tomorrow captures a lot of the weirdness of uh, of Disneyland in a way. Mm. Like when when you're a kid, it's kind of great and magical, and you're running around, and you're seeing all the characters and everything like that. Mm-hmm. I think as you're older, there is a lot of appeal to the rides and things like that, and, and certainly the design of the place is is you know second to none, and is, has been engineered or imagined to within an inch of its life. But mm. there is also kind of just this weird air around it of just kind of walking around and seeing these kind of celebrations of films that are in some cases 50 or 60 70 80 years old mm. and the uh this uh you know all of this stuff that's kind of come out of the mind of you know a long dead anti-semite <laughs> yeah absolutely who wasn't frozen he was cremated so let's just kill that urban legend here. And then his son uh, snorted his ashes. Oh, wait, that's a different guy. Yeah, that's someone else. Owned by Disney, though. Keith Richards and that <laughs> character. Um, just that's saying. technically true, I guess. It is yeah. technically true, yeah. <laughs> um, um, like, it was weird that you were saying there that um, talking about uh, films that are kind of 40 years old or whatever being celebrated, there's quite a few films that don't get mentioned anymore. Some mm. have been expunged from the record. I'm talking, looking at you, Song of the South. Um, not only terrifying my co-host at the thought of being eaten by a bull, um, yep. uh, also really racist. Um, so they've got rid of that. But, Although they um, zippity doodah does get a lot of play still. Yeah, and uh, oh, it's catchy. It's catchy. And magic. I think it's Magic Mountain, or there is there is some water ride which is based based on Song of the South. It's to do with like being on a log flume and going down through a brayer patch and stuff like that, which is all plot elements from that film, but. Mm. But they got rid of the sla- they got rid of the slavery coaster back in the sixties, you know. Yeah, they just realised that there's there's just something a bit off about this. Mm. But um, it's I some of the ones that are still considered classics, like like I say, I think there's fifty four or fifty five classics made by Walt Disney Animation Studios, and you'll know most of them. You've probably seen a great deal of them. I think I'm up to about forty now. Um, but there are some really weird ones. There's like three in the middle. Of the kind of fifties, I think, uh, and I caught one of them the other day. It's uh, called the Three Caballeros, mm. and is kind of part Disney romp, part um, kind of educational film about South America. And it starts off with like a really kind of cool, quirky film, short film about a penguin who's uh, you know who is too cold, um, and then ends with a bit with Donald Duck crossing over into live action and behaving. Like a drugged up sex tourist. Which yeah, I I have seen that. Easy every day. Yeah, I, I had that one on video. That one's a very weird one. It's also it's like a sequel to a previous film with the same characters, but I've never seen the first film, so 
I was always a little baffled by the fact that Donald just had these two friends who he was like palling around with. And it's just like, who the hell are these these mm. guys that have dragged him on this uh, journey through South America? Yeah, and it is kind of funny and it's kind of like cool. And then it gets trippy as nuts. Uh, <laughs> like it's all the kind of that, it's that whole pink elephant vibe. But yeah, it gets really psychedelic and weird. And then he starts perving over kind of like Brazilian street dancers in a really kind of suspect predatory way. And for a man who doesn't wear trousers, you know, that's a bad look. It, that is, that, I think that is an element, not necessarily the kind of perviness, but certainly the psychedelic, weird, you know, acid trip quality is something that I think has been lost from a lot of the Disney things. Certainly the, I think the early days of animation when people kind of, they, they didn't seem to be codified about what you could have. You could have the elephants on parade sequence from Dumbo. You could have... Um, the entirety of Alice in Wonderland, which is just the last crazy. half an hour of Pinocchio, yeah, which is terrifying. Yeah, the, there was a lot of that sort of stuff in there, which uh, I think in in those early days when Walt was in charge, and I think must have just had some weird stuff roiling around in his uh, subconscious. You, you know, they they did seem to go in some weird directions. Fantasia is mm. like an insane idea, <laughs> you know, to just kind of go, yeah, we're going to do a series of short films all about classical music. And we're going to release it into the public. And of course, they're not, not going to like it. Um, it yeah. didn't do very well. But, you know, there's just kind of, a, you know, a crazy element to them that after after he died, uh, isn't you don't really see it in the, the films post-Walt in in that era that where they hired people like Tim Burton or John Lasseter and they promptly left mm. when they just weren't happy with the sort of films that were being made. Uh, and I think that in the recent era, there really isn't anything comparable to that in any of the the, the films you know made post 1989 i think that they can all be really good and can be great but there there is a certain um kind of safeness to them mm. yeah. not not as other than you know mufasa's death there's not a huge amount of trauma in the, a lot of those disney films no no and no kind of real racism um <laughs> um not that, not to speak. I mean, Dumbo's a bit suspect, but I mean that's quite old now. Uh, with the with the birds on the telephone wire, they're a bit kind of like. But then a lot of those early uh, Disney films feature gross caricatures, one way or another. Someone actually did point out on Facebook the other day, which I thought was interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, Mulan is a animated film which has an, a cast entirely made of uh, Asian actors, and Eddie I, Murphy, and Eddie Murphy, yeah, but. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, Harvey Firestein, but apart from those guys, the entire cast is actual actors of Asian descent, uh, which I thought was uh, weird. This weird kind of blip of progressiveness in Disney's history of just casting white people in pretty much every part. Mm. Uh, but then, thought... just before that, they did make Pocahontas, which yes, <laughs> I mean, I mean, the film's all right, but I mean, genocide, really? <laughs> I mean. Yeah, that's bad. And then Mel Gibson as the lead, just you know, that's just insensitive. Um, yeah. He calls over sugar tits at one point. It's <laughs> just embarrassing, and tries to pin that on the Jews. That's that was a bad moment in Disney's history. They should probably uh, rethink that for the Blu-ray release. Um, <laughs> oh, that's another thing that Disney do that's kind of fairly uh, business savvy slash despicable is um, endlessly re- releasing and deleting things mm. um, to kind of drive up demand at the minute if you're kind of in England and kind of go into any supermarket or 
uh, kind of uh, record shop into your local branch of R Price or Andy's Records, um, you will see uh, currently all the Pixar films are reboxed with uh, special kind of sleeves on to make them all um, kind of cohesive. But there's films there that have been previously deleted for the last five years, and then I'm sure that once this cycle ends, they will then delete those again. Uh, to drive up tomorrow, I tried to buy Beauty and the Beast for my wife at Christmas, um, and it had just been re-released on Blu-ray in the same packaging, having been previously unavailable for two years. Uh, yeah, which is really crazy because then it drives up kind of price and, and demand. Well, I suppose is um, what businesses are supposed to do, I guess. But it's uh, you know, it it kind of makes it. I wonder how many people have bought all of the Disney films on uh, VHS and then on DVD and then now on Blu-ray. I imagine there's quite a lot of people who have certainly, in the case of, you know, people who maybe bought a film cheap on uh, on DVD because they finally found it and then instantly Disney just announced, oh, yeah, it's getting like a Diamond Edition mm. Blu-ray and stuff like that. Um, I was just kind of thinking that I think that probably makes Disney the kind of, certainly in the old days, the analog equivalent to, you know, Netflix streaming where mm-hmm. stuff just disappears. <laughs> it's up to them. Yeah. The only difference is it's not because they've lost the rights to it. It's just because they think, no, you don't deserve this at the moment. Yeah. You can buy it. I'm still it. upset at Netflix for deleting only season one of RuPaul's Drag Race, which I never finished, and it just hops straight to season two. And if you're going to get the full appreciation out of that program, you need to watch every episode. Yeah, the mythology's not going to make any sense. Mm, absolutely. Um, so that's fucking Disney. Uh, awesome on one hand, uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, a bit sinister really. Uh, evil corporation, but I think we'll probably let it slide because Tangled's fantastic. It is uh, absolutely amazing piece of work, and my favorite, my probably the fe- my favorite thing I got to do when I worked at the showroom was I got to go to a uh, a Disney presentation one day where they were showing you know clips and and full films from their upcoming slate, mm. and uh, one of the things they showed like the first forty minutes of Tron Legacy. Uh, which was fine, <laughs> you know, watching that in 3D was quite nice, but they also showed all of Tangled about two or three months before it was coming out, and oh. uh, that was the one time that uh, I felt that 3D really benefited, because the bit with all the Chinese lanterns is, mm. you know, that was really quite stunning in 3D. It's the only, like, film I've ever seen where I thought, yep, yeah, that bit was really, really benefited from it. Yeah, yeah, Tangled. I think that I would go so far as to say that is my favourite Disney film. <laughs> It's um, number two Clo- for me. What's your number one? Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast, yeah. Yeah, Beauty and the Beast for me is probably somewhere like four or five. Um, I've got Little Mermaid in there above it. Robin Hood in there. Just, I mean, that's the that's the one I used to watch most as a kid. It's certainly not the best, but I think as as a, a kind of favourites go, that's mine. Used to watch it every bonfire night, fifth of November every. I don't know why chose to do that. Um, Celebrating yeah, but- another outlaw. Exactly. Uh, that's it. There, there you go. There's a new Disney idea: the gunpowder plot with anthropomorphic animals. <laughs> um, we can probably remove the Catholic subtext um, and just you know, make it like mouse and have them yeah. like the Catholics represented by cats, mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, Protestants by beagles. I don't know. Yeah, and we'll remove the hung, drawn, and quarter bit of it, and the torturing. And it would just be a happy plot about, you know, some wet gunpowder uh, delivered by a talking weasel or something. Um, <laughs> I would I would genuinely watch that. Uh, it's time for Shot Reverse Shot Recommends. And I've had a think 
uh, this week talking about kind of Disney and, and the way it's kind of changed animation. I thought I'd like to talk about uh, one of my favourite lesser seen uh, animated films that has nothing to do with Disney, but if you're into Disney, give it a watch. Uh, it's a film called The Secret of Kells, uh, which is a wonderful uh, animation that was one of those films that got nominated for an Oscar. And everyone was like, what the fuck is that? Who's seen that? No one's seen that because no one had seen it. But the people who voted for it had seen it and it's bloody great. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful film. Great uh, vocal performance by, I think, Brendan Gleeson. Let's uh, say yes. It's Irish, so probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, that's a, that's a stunningly animated film. And that was one that I only watched because it got nominated for an Oscar. I was like, yay, they got it right. Yeah. For the first time. They didn't win. No. Probably lost to Shrek 2 or something. <laughs> or Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, my My recommendation for this week... I guess it kind of has a tangible uh, connection to Disney in that it stars a bunch of people who have been in uh, Disney-owned properties. It is oh, the that's lame. That's less a lame connection. It is the Netflix original series "Wet Hot American Summer: Colon First Day at Camp," which oh, stars yeah. obviously Amy Poehler, Paul Rudd, Bradley Cooper, all Disney alums. Um, for people who don't know, and I think the people who don't know is probably a lot smaller number than it was like a month ago because everyone's mm-hmm. been talking about it. Uh, Wet Hot American Summer was a comedy from 2001 directed by David Wayne and co-written by Wayne and Michael Showalter, which was about uh, the last day at camp in this kind of, uh, and it was uh, this uh, Jewish summer camp set in 1981. Uh, it was a very funny, very both keenly observed parody of camp movies from the 80s and also ridiculously absurd film that combined the plots of about 12 different kind of cliched uh, 80s romps which uh, was really really funny uh, has probably the funniest car crash you'll ever see in cinema uh, mm, and certainly the least expected yes <laughs> and uh, it's just just really really great fit and then for years and years and years Wayne and Showalter said that they were going to try and make a follow-up to it uh, and their big gag was that the longer it went on the more convinced they came to the idea of doing a prequel where the actors who were in their uh, late 20s playing teenagers would now be in their kind of mid-40s playing <laughs> even younger versions of those characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, Netflix finally made it happen, and uh, it's really great. It's eight episodes. Uh, the entire cast came back, which is crazy when you consider that that cast includes people like Bradley Cooper and Paul Rudd, who are you know now big stars, or even people like you know Ken Reno and Joe Latrulio, who are now kind of in-demand comic actors who show up in things all the time. And they add in sort of newer faces like uh, John Hamm, Michael Cera. Jason Schwartzman. Is yeah. Jason, no, is Jason Schwartzman in the original one? He's not, no. no. He's a new um, addition. Yeah. Um, but all, all good people, they've added to it. Late Bell. Late Bell, mm-hmm. who's, uh, who's really funny in it. Uh, yeah, and it's just uh, a really... It, it's incredibly funny. Uh, it has a pretty good hit rate similar to the first film and just the, the variety of gags they have stuff where if you are familiar with the kind of films being parodied you know there's a there's a plot line in it which is basically just the film never being kissed mm. uh which is is very well handled but also there's just lots of completely absurd bits such as a point to which uh michael showalter dresses up as a woman called patty pancakes <laughs> and then talks about how she uh shits in people's bathing suits and then hides it as a in a treasure hunt yeah, it's just yeah, it just has bits like that that are completely nuts, uh, and it's 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 tremendously funny, and it's it's way better than that idea has any right to be, uh, and it's all up on Netflix now, and it is really really great. Mm. I um I, I like the way that Patty was it was the name 
Patty Pancakes. Patty Pancakes has ended a podcast about Disney because sounds like a character that could easily fit in. <laughs> Uh, it's that Disney universe. I'm I've not finished it yet. I'm at episode six, but uh, was always a big fan of uh, Wet Hot American. Some of the films. I'm very pleased to see it uh, arrive on the small screen. So that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a little review because it really helps other people find us. Also, find us on Twitter, on Facebook, all that stuff. And thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back again next week with something entirely different, I'm sure. And until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.